So join me in Acts chapter 23. We're going to start with verse 23 and move through to chapter 24, verse 27. So we're going to do a lot of reading today. I hope you don't mind that. We're going to do a lot of reading of the text. Now, this particular text, I think, will serve to get us thinking a little bit more about culture and the world within which we live. And then secondly, it will serve to remind us of our mission in culture and how we are to engage with the powers and the structures and the institutions of this present world. Now, from time to time, I have had Christians ask me questions like, is, is it appropriate, do you think it's appropriate for a Christian to get involved in political discourse? Do you think it's appropriate for the church to get involved in political discourse? Some have asked that quite politely. Others have maybe asked it not so politely and simply said, the church should have nothing to do with such matters. We shouldn't be talking about such things. We should just be helping people to see that they're sinners and encouraging people to repent and put their faith in Christ, and then we'll, we'll wait for Jesus Christ to come back. Well, regardless of the attitude, let's not spend too much time thinking about the attitude, but both of these questions assume or at least imply that the gospel message, that the message of the scriptures is really just about you and your conversion. It's this mindset that is so prevalent in the modern church that we want to get everybody saved, get them prepped up for heaven, but we don't really care about the world around us. It's sort of lost. It's on its way down. It's in flames. Why bother with it? It's like the, the ship is sinking. Let's get as many people on the lifeboats as possible. This is the mindset that I think many people bring to their Christian faith. They're comfortable talking about morals and God's laws in their homes. They're certainly comfortable talking about these things in the church, but they, they have this notion that we should sort of butt out of what is, what is taking place in the, the world around us. Now, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, and for those of you that are young, maybe a little younger, a record is this round black thing that has a little needle that goes around and plays music, and if there's a scratch in it, it skips. So at the risk of sounding like a, a broken or scratched record, some of what I'm going to be talking about today uh, um, includes things I've talked about before. But... It's good to be reminded of these things, and the book of Acts has certain themes in it that repeat themselves, and so they, it's a great springboard to talk about these issues over and over and over again. By the way, we're only going to be another month or month and a half in the book of Acts. We are going to finish almost to the end of 24, so we're, we're in the home stretch. But I want to remind you that the world within which we live is a spiritual world. It's not just that the church is spiritual, but the world as a whole is spiritually charged. Its institutions are religious. Its values are religious. Its officials are religious. Even if they say they're not religious, they are religious because they appeal to an authoritative standard. They have a moral code and they give orders to other people as to how they should live or how they should think or how they should talk. So the world within which we live is religious. The courts are religious. Officials are religious. We live in a spiritually charged world. And even when we talk about politics, and when we talk about politics, the, the narrowest definition of that word is like partisan politics. That's not how I'm using it. 
But politics is a, is a broader word that refers to the structures, the systems, the values that are part of the social order. And we're all affected by that. We're all, we are all political beings. We're all affected by the values of our culture, the institutions of our culture, the people who are in high office in our culture, the courts of our culture. We are political beings. And it's rather naive for us to withdraw from those things and say, we don't get involved in politics. Whether you think you're involved in politics or not, you're involved in politics. Every time you interact with a structure in society, when you go to a school, when you affirm a view of marriage, when you vote, when you travel on the roads and you pay your taxes, you are a political being. So we can't escape it. And the political structures of our world are for the most part at war with Christ and his church. And it's somewhat naive for us to just say, well, we're, we're, not, gonna, we're not gonna speak into these issues. We're just gonna hide and we're gonna preach the gospel. We're gonna get as many people onto the lifeboats as possible. And we're not gonna concern ourselves with the, the ship that's burning around us. Now, of course, when it comes to the various fights that we were called to fight, we do need to pick our fights. So there's not much point in us spending our time weighing in on things in culture that don't matter. Maybe you prefer, maybe you would prefer if, if stop signs were round. Is that really something we should be spending much time weighing in on? Maybe you prefer concrete roads as opposed to asphalt roads or asphalt roads as opposed to concrete roads. These are not spiritual matters, but the way our courts adjudicate matters of justice, the way we conceive of marriage, the way we perceive of the church's place in culture, our views of right or wrong, the way we use medicine for the good or for the evil. These are all moral issues. And there will be times when we have to speak into these matters. Now, the reason why I'm comfortable speaking into these matters is because when I look at the word of God, I see men like Paul speaking into these matters. Paul preached the gospel. He told people to repent, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also engaged with officials for extended periods of time. He had conversations with the governor. He talked to people in positions of high office. He was, he was interviewed by the Tribune. He was interviewed by the Sanhedrin. He was interviewed by the Roman governor of Judea. And so while we've been freed from our sin and we're looking forward to God's eternal kingdom, in the here and now, we're still alive, hearts are still beating, and we've not yet been freed from sinful structures. We've not yet been freed from the broader structures of our culture. And so we have to figure out a way, if we're going to be thoughtful people, we have to figure out a way to conduct ourselves properly in a politically charged culture. And it seems to me then that Christians must learn to thoughtfully engage and preach to political powers. Maybe do a little better job of that than we've done over the last, say, 30 years. Christians, again, must learn to thoughtfully engage and preach to political power. So join me in Acts 23. We'll see Paul doing this. God is putting him in, in places that we may not normally want to find ourselves, but we may. And he uses those opportunities to declare Christ and to confront lies. So the background is Paul had been preaching in Asia He'd returned to Jerusalem. He'd been told that he's going to suffer some persecution there. He went anyway. He was first questioned by fellow Christians and clarified some of his views. 
He then is questioned by the Roman officials. He's then questioned by Jewish officials. And when he was questioned by the Jewish officials through an institution known as the Sanhedrin, they hated his guts. They treated him irrationally. And they conspired to have him murdered. And the Roman official discovers that that he there's a conspiracy whereby 40 men are about to murder Paul and he decides to get a bunch of soldiers together and to whisk Paul away to the Roman governor to be put on trial there. And that's where we pick up uh, on this account in Acts 23, verse 23. My intention is to read large portions, make a few little comments along the way, and then give you some point-by-point take-homes at the end. Verse 23. This is speaking of the, the tribune. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Before we read the letter, notice how much energy and tax dollars are spent on a guy that he knows right well is innocent. This man is what is known as a tribune. In the Greek, it's a kiliarch. And kili is the word thousand. So he was a relatively high-ranking Roman military official that was responsible to oversee 1,000 men. And he takes almost half of his force, 470 soldiers for one guy. Some Some of them are on horses. Some of them are on foot. Some of them are... Spearman, he takes 470 men. Imagine the cost to have one guy transported out of Jerusalem to stand before Felix. He knew he was innocent. So why didn't he just say, this is a farce. This is a joke. The Sanhedrin is a kangaroo court. We're just going to let this guy go because of politics. Because worldview affects the decisions that every single official makes. And the bottom line is this. And we're going to see this fleshed out more in this tribune's life momentarily. He's all about pleasing, pleasing and appeasing his constituents. It doesn't make sense that he would spend this much time and this much energy on one guy. But he wants to stay in the good books of the Sanhedrin. So even though he knows they're acting snaky behind the scenes, they had 40 men ready to jump out of the bushes and kill Paul, he still takes half of his force and they flee at night off to see Felix. Now, this is the first time we're told the Tribune's name. And it's, it, his name is mentioned at the beginning of the letter that he writes to Felix. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. By the way, I just want you to make a mental note of this. This is a Roman speaking to a Roman, and he honors the governor's office at the beginning of his letter. But keep that in mind because you're going to see a much more extended, much more flowery, much more lavish introduction made by the Jews when they later come and speak to Felix. And there's a reason for that as well. So the letter, the substance of the letter is is as follows. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. We didn't exactly rescue him. (laughs) 
you were going to beat the guy. And then you found out he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, the Sanhedrin. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, highlight this in your mind, with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Well, he could have just ordered them to be arrested because they're about to kill a guy contrary to Roman law. But he kind of leaves that little part out. So we finally know the tribune's name. But more importantly, we know what his perspective is on Paul. He believes that Paul is innocent. That he's not guilty of any of the accusations made against him. So then it begs the question, why would he ship him off to Felix? Why would he take the time to take almost half of his army and send them with Paul so that Paul would not be arrested? Felix, by the way, was the governor of Judea. Judea was the historic land of the Jews that had been confiscated by the Roman forces. Later, it was called Palestinia and remained a territory up till 1948. So it wasn't a separate, distinct country. It was under the occupying forces of the Romans at this time. And Felix was the governor of this region. So why does he send him to Felix? Well, it's called passing the buck, folks. That's what it's called. And this is one of the things that we, we observe in corrupt leaders and government officials even today. Passing the buck. Always passing the responsibilities on to someone else. Why? Because of political expediency. Because they don't want to save face. Because they don't want to lose their jobs. Because they don't want to get in hot water. In our context, because they don't want to lose the next election. These aren't principled people. And we should expect more and more of that. As, it, as the society unhitches itself from God and his governing laws, increasingly we will have people in all levels of society who are making their decisions based upon what's best for their own purposes to save their skin. We see this here. It doesn't make any sense spending who knows how many tax dollars when he could have just said, the guy's innocent, he's gone. Sanhedrin, buzz off. Leave the guy alone. But that's not what happens. It has to turn into this big brouhaha. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night, which isn't the most honest way of doing it. Again, it's political expediency, to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks letting the horsemen go on with him. When they came to Caesarea and delivered the letters, letter to uh, the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias, we met him earlier. He was the guy that had Paul struck, contrary to the law, just because he didn't like what he was saying. He came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. It's typical for tyrants to hide behind spokesmen and speechwriters, by the way. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. 
And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him saying, so this is where I want you to go back and recall to mind the opening lines of the letter that Claudius Lysias wrote to Felix and then compare that to the opening remarks from this religious clergyman, this representative of the Jews. And keep in mind, the Jews are under Roman occupation. They're literally an occupied people, a suppressed people who of course would rather be free. But instead of acknowledging that, this guy heaps on compliments to Felix as if he actually appreciates him. He's a liar, but he fraternizes with, he tries to puff up. He tries to appeal to Felix so that he can get Paul murdered. It's one of the tactics of bad people. Since through you, he says, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for all this nation. And everywhere, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. It's like, come on, buddy. Like what an absolute liar. That's what he is. He's a liar. But this is what people that are unhitched from God's morals who don't have integrity will do. And we should expect it. Even from clergymen, even from religious people. They like to work the system. They like to schmooze. They like to build alliances for their own nefarious purposes. He says, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Right now your gag reflex should be kicking in. For we have found this man a plague. Oh, that's really substantive. Let's just call him a name. Instead of getting to the facts, we'll just, we'll just call him a name. He's a plague. He's a plague rat. You ever been called a plague rat? I was a couple weeks ago on Twitter. He's a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader. Ooh, that's a, that's a scary word. He's a ringleader. But it doesn't stop there. Of the sect. Nobody wants to be part of a sect. Sectarian. That's like you're not part of the mainstream. You're, you're fringe. Kind of weird of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So typical of the mainstream evildoers of our age, they accuse Christians of disturbing the peace. Meanwhile, Christians are the ones that have brought about stability historically in Western civilization. Try to find a country that doesn't have a Christian origin that stands for liberty, liberty of religious conscience, that has a high view of property ownership, that penalizes theft or cheating or perjury to the degree that historic Christian nations have done. So it's, it's, all, it's all a lie. It's all smoke and mirrors. And of course, he uses lots of slippery accusations that are without substance to make him sound dangerous. He's a plague. He's a, he's a ringleader. We're going to label his views as sectarian. In other words, if you're not mainstream and you're not towing the line and you're not following the rules of your accusers, you're the problem. And again, can we not see those same patterns being repeated time and time again, even up to and into the present. But let me tell you this, this is actually a compliment because the Bible says elsewhere 
in Luke 6, 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. It's typical to speak well of the false prophets, the liars. But if you're a Christian and everybody likes you, you have a problem that you need to resolve. Make some enemies. And you will make enemies when you simply speak the truth. You don't need to be jerkish about it, but you do need to speak the truth because the message of the cross and the message of the kingdom is offensive to the carnal man. But nevertheless, we must. Well, it says the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all of these things were so. So, oh, okay. So if the majority says it's true, it must be true, right? That's the idea. And when the governor had nodded uh, to him to speak, Paul replied. So now we have Paul's, Paul has an opportunity to defend himself. It's not unchristian, by the way, to defend yourself. I don't know where that idea comes from, but it's not unchristian to defend yourself against false accusations but they obviously need to be substantive. Some people, their default, they're going to defend themselves even when they're wrong. Paul's not defending himself because he's wrong, but he defends himself because he's been accused of falsehood. Here's what Paul says. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. No fluffing up of Felix, no flattery, no high and lofty words about how wonderful he is and how great he's been for the nation. It says, you've been a judge, and I cheerfully, notice his attitude, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul is not rattled. One of the things we, we have to be careful not to idolize men, but we can look for good examples. And Paul is a man of poise. And he does not allow his circumstances to drag him down in the dumps. He says, you can verify that It is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. In other words, it's a lie. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess, that according to the way, Christianity in other words, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So he doesn't give like the entire gospel narrative, but he's touching on it. He's pointing to his faith and to his moral uh, uprightness. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man, which should be a desire in each of our hearts. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Alms is the money you give to the poor, offerings to the temple, and tithes are sort of in a different category. When I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. In other words, they've presented no evidence. They've called the guy a plague, a ringleader, and a sectarian, but that's about it. 
Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Obviously in Paul's resurrection theology, it was tied to Christ and his work on the cross, which they took great offense to. Now here's how Felix responds. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, which is interesting, this man had some understanding of Christianity, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribute comes down, I will decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So more or less house arrest. It was a pretty, pretty generous opportunity that it appears Felix gives to, to Paul. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came down with his wife, Drusilla. Sounds like something from the Adams family, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Well, isn't this interesting? Why am I suffering, Lord? Paul could have said. Why is this dragging on? Why, is, why wasn't I released? Why was I before the tribune and not declared to be innocent? Why was I mistreated at the hands of the Sanhedrin? Why was I taken by 470 soldiers? And it's like, I know why now. God had given him an opportunity to testify. Keep that in mind. He'd given him an opportunity to testify in his suffering. See, God doesn't always remove our suffering and clear the air because he's giving us an opportunity to speak and preach in a way that we otherwise would not have. So, he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix, of course, initially listens. Then it says, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Here we have the weight of conviction on Felix. At the same time, typical of godless people in high office, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Aha, so he's on the take. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Like, how gross is that? Claudius Lysias knew he was innocent. The Jews had nothing on him but name-calling. Felix spent numerous conversations talking about spiritual things with Paul. They all knew he was innocent, but two years of his life was spent under house arrest. And then even at the end of that, the guy retires, gets a promotion, whatever. And he still doesn't do the right thing and release him. In a sin-sick world, brothers and sisters, Christians will always be persecuted. There will be plenty of times when Christians are, are taken before the courts, not because they're guilty, but because we live in a sin-sick world. Christians can plead their cases. Otherwise, we're feeding cultural injustice and lies. But there's also some Pretty wonderful lessons for us to learn from Paul's example in this particular situation. Here's the first one. When we are before the politicians of our age, point people to the gospel. Point the politicians to the gospel. Paul doesn't blame God let go, let God. He literally thrives in whatever situation he finds himself in. 
It's hard for us to imagine this because I, I think we all have this notion that if we're going to thrive, we need the environment to be good and peaceful and calm. But that's not true. That is not true. The Christian church has proven time and time again, it grows under persecution. It's proven that time and time again. You know it in your own life that the sufferings and trials that you each, and I know every one of you have gone through them, that know the Lord. If, if you've responded properly, every single one of them has served to mature you in your faith. And you know it. And I know it. Doesn't mean I look for persecution. But it's true. Time and time again. So whether we are in front of the courts, Sanhedrin, Felix's court, or whether we are in a private conversation with a politician or governor, an official, like Paul had opportunity to do with Felix, Paul was an absolutely relentless preacher. You know what we need in our culture? Not more rude Christians. We need more relentless Christians who persevere, who bear up, who push forward, who don't give in, who don't throw in the towel, who keep preaching the truth. It can irritate people. It can shame others, but we must preach the truth. I've been a Christian for a long time, over 40 years. And I'll tell you straight up, there's times when I want to just pack it all in. Why am I doing public ministry? I could make a whole lot more money in the private realm. I know I could. I'm entrepreneurial. I could start a big business. I know for a fact I can make a boatload of money in the marketplace. There's no question about that. I could do my own thing. I could go on vacation when I wanted to. And there's times that I'm like, why am I doing this? I just want to go out in my field and pet some cows. And if I take issue with them, I'll just eat them. I can't do that with my congregants in good conscience. Although some of you look rather tasty. So I would assume then that if a guy like me who's pastoring a church, been a Christian for over four decades, struggles with that, that you all do as well. But we need to be relentless. And Paul later said to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. When it's popular and unpopular, when it's allowed and when it's not allowed. You know, it's deer hunting season, right? But it's not always deer hunting season. It's limited to a period of time. If you hunt out of season, you're going to get in trouble. Well, there's times when preaching the gospel is permitted. And there's other times when preaching the gospel is not permitted. But the Christian doesn't need a permit from the authorities to preach the gospel. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't need a permit or authorization from the state to hold worship services. We preach the word of God in season and we preach it out of season. And we point politicians, and when I say politicians, again, I'm not talking about people necessarily tied to a party in a position of elected office. I'm talking about all the magistrates and leaders of our culture who preach the gospel to them relentlessly. Second lesson, the political sphere is actually a pulpit. I think, well, that's kind of weird. I think of the church as the pulpit of our culture. Well, actually, your marriage is a pulpit. Your family is a pulpit. Your business is a pulpit. And the educational institutions of our age are pulpits. Politics is a pulpit. Paul 
leverages his imprisonment before these political leaders as a pulpit. He uses it as a pulpit. And I love his attitude. I cheerfully make my defense. And then he springs board into a discussion about Christ, which leads to a series of ongoing spiritual conversations with the governor. Now, apparently this guy didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ, but who knows who else heard, listened in, was impacted by that. And even if he didn't bear fruit, he still did the right thing. It's easy to limit Christian preaching to the church. I'll tell you this, when guys like me go to seminary, we're taught to preach within the church. And so you create generations of guys that are very comfortable preaching in the church to the people of God and are terrified to engage the culture and retreat into their studies for 40, 50 hours a week to study the word of God. By the way, if it takes you 40, 50 hours a week to prepare a sermon, something's wrong. Paul didn't spend his entire week studying and preaching. We would say, oh, this pastor just labors in his study all week. I would say that's irresponsible. Because we're also told, I'll point you to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, to do the work of an evangelist. Paul was out engaging with people in the public realm all the time. He wasn't just hiding out in his office like some awkward introvert. And then coming out to the pulpit and preaching and then hiding back in his office all week. He was engaged with the world around him all the time. We need more Christians like that. More Christians like that. That are engaged with the world around them. If we don't do this, if we don't share the, the full message of the gospel, who, who else is, uh, who's Jesus' farm team? Who else is going to do the job? Who else is God going to call up if the church doesn't do it? There's no second string. It's our job. It's our task. So we need to learn to see every sphere, every opportunity as a pulpit and find ways to preach the truth to whatever audience God has put in front of us. And third, as did Paul, study the spirituality of politics. Understand that the world within which you live and I live and the officials that you interact with all have a moral Basis it might be immorality, it might be morality, it might be some other ism out there. Let me break this down a little bit further. A few things we notice about Felix and his interaction with Paul that remind us of how spiritually charged all officials are, all institutions are. So the first one is this. You'll notice, and don't be surprised by this, when an interest in God and rebellion toward God go hand in hand. And we'll see this weird, almost uh, competition, even in, even in our own country. On one hand, you got politicians that seem to be in favor of the church, speaking out in support of the church, applauding the church, and then at the same time, stabbing the church in the back and not standing for the church. It's this weird, it's like, what side are you on? Felix was the same kind of guy. It says he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He sent for Paul. He heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. He seems interested. But when there's conviction, what does he do? He says, go away for the present. When I have an opportunity, I will summon you. This is this weird, fickle, on-again, off-again relationship that the Christian church even has with Western governments and Western officials. They, they kind of like us and they kind of don't. 
They like us when we're encouraging them and standing for them and voting for them and appointing them and speaking well of them and praying for them. But when you start to get into the nitty gritty of stuff, it's, uh, see you later. We can also expect to be taken advantage of and treated in a, in a fickle matter. Paul was treated in a very fickle matter. Verse 23, on one hand, he's kind of nice to Paul. He said he should be kept in custody, have some liberty, let his friends come and visit him, tend to his needs. Like, well, this is kind of nice. I mean, he's being a pretty good guy. But then he's snaky at the same time. Verse 26, he hoped the money would be given to him. So he's giving Paul liberties and freedoms, but he's hoping to, he's on the take. And this is the same thing we see in our modern era. We're not anarchists. It's not like down with the government, no structures. It's a free-for-all. That's not possible. You're naive if you think that will work. It doesn't work. But at the same time, without Christ, all of these establishments and institutions will be infected with sin, people that are on the take, people that are sort of kind of, sort of, in a bit, in a certain way, on your side, but definitely not. Unfortunately, we can't really expect more of them because they haven't hitched their morals to the foundation who is Christ. Sadly, I would say some Christians, for whatever reason, still think very highly of the chariots and princes and kings and authorities of our world. They, they trust the experts. I don't trust the experts. I barely trust myself. They trust the experts. They, they assume that the courts are going to do the right thing. Really? They assume that law enforcement is on their side. Now, indeed, within these institutions, there are some very, very good conscientious people who are serving well in law enforcement and politics and educational establishments and medical establishments that know the Lord and are doing their best. And some of them are in very challenging circumstances and we should honor them. But these carte blanche, I, I trust the experts. I trust the, the leaders, the officials of our age. It's very unwise, assuming that they're benevolent in some way without any real foundation in Christ. We should be wary, lest we be duped, but at the same time, not withdraw and never speak to them again. We should engage with them and seek to speak the truth, even if it doesn't necessarily benefit us much. It certainly didn't benefit Paul to spend two years having a chat with a guy that basically threw him under the bus when his term expired. And then we have this sad truth that justice is often corrupted by bribes and politicking. Here we have a man in a, in, a, in a position of high office, we've already touched on this, who is supposed to adjudicate on justice, on right or wrongness, who is on the take. Well, you know what? This is a good reminder to us that your guilt is not ultimately determined by human courts. Your guilt is determined by God. And he is the ultimate judge. And even if the courts of this world do not always adjudicate in a way that is just and righteous, we know that ultimately we will stand before an audience of one. So we do the right thing. We don't cheer too loudly when we're exonerated by the courts of this age because the next breath you might be thrown under the bus by them. We obviously want to see public justice, but ultimately we need to determine are our actions, are our behaviors in keeping with the laws of the true judge, who is God. 
So the bottom line, brothers and sisters, is this. I think this narrative serves as a bit of a call for us to live more balanced lives. We want people to experience freedom and life and liberty in Christ. We want people to have the assurance of eternal life and resurrection hope. We want to point people toward eternity. But we also need to engage with our environment and leverage and use the circumstances of our world as best as we can to to not be afraid to address political leaders, to not be afraid to defend the truth in a court of law and never to make the mistake of thinking that if life is rough, God must have abandoned us. God may have put you through challenging times as your privilege to be able to represent him well. But in order to do that, you have to be relentless. If there's a little smidgen of cowardliness in you, you need to deal with that. You need to ask for courage. Likewise, you want to be winsome and wise in the way that you interact with people. You need to be relentless, but you certainly don't need to be rude, especially if it's a one-on-one conversation where you need to be extra sensitive. And let us be reminded that in the end, this is our father's world and we are Christ's embassy and it's our job to represent him well, even in our suffering. So be encouraged by these words and be like Paul to the degree that Paul was obedient to Christ. We'll pray to that end. Thank you.